If you have your Bible with you today, I'm going to encourage you to go to Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, and you're going to see how that all fits together with Genesis chapter 1. If you're new to New Hope, we're walking through um, a series called E2E, Eternity to Eternity, in which we're walking from Revelation through Genesis, Genesis all the way to Revelation. And this morning, we're looking at Satan and his role in all of this. Gratefully, as Martin Luther wrote in that very first song you sang this morning, lo, his doom is sure. We have a reason to celebrate and a reason to be festive this morning in what we're looking at, because what we're examining, the end has already been written. If you have not read the book of Revelation, I encourage you to do that. You'll find out how this all plays out. We'll get to that in about 55 years, because it's going to take that long. Okay? We're going to just march our way through it. But this morning, we're examining the realm of Satan. So happy Halloween and welcome to New Hope. <laughs> the way it's going to play out. Several years ago, I was invited to a debate. Um, it was presented to me as a conversation, a, a discussion, uh, but it actually kind of turned into a debate. It was among philosophy professors at a, a local university that's only a couple miles away. That's kind of a major university and they have green for their colors. And the discussion was to be among the philosophy professors and myself, and the subject was to be the origin of evil. And the reason it's of such interest, especially in the world of academia, is because of the worldview that's taken in the world of academia. In colleges and universities, no surprise to you to see that in that world, the argument is that humans evolved and not created, but rather evolved from a subspecies. And the big concept behind evolution is that life continues to get better, that life continues to evolve. But that's a very troubling thought for those in the world of philosophy. Philosophers reason and continue to struggle with the reason for why evil is even here. How did it get here? Why is there evil among humans? We're such a highly evolved species that should be gone by this point. So you can imagine where that debate went. From a, a biblical worldview, my view, looking at it through the lens of the Bible, it's no riddle to me at all. It's no mystery whatsoever. I know what the source of evil is because God declared it in His Word. He said that Satan is the father of lies. He's the source of all evil. He's the source of murder and betrayal and deception and all corruption. This is the way Jesus actually said it. John 8, 44. Speaking of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now try sharing that truth with a group of philosophy professors. See how that goes over. I understood what it was saying very clearly. And it's very obvious that the explanation wouldn't sit well, well with a group of faculty members at most colleges around the world. This would be true, especially when they reject the existence of Satan, which merely reflects society. Culture, I'll just put the statistic for you up on the screen. Culture as a whole, I don't mean Christian, I don't mean non-Christian, I mean Americans in general, 60% believe in the existence of Satan, meaning 40% think he's a myth. 40% believe that Satan was just something that was created to 
sell Halloween products or to keep children in line so that they'll behave. But if Jesus says evil originated with Satan, and He refers to Satan in the first person as a real being with a real personality who has will and emotion and intelligence, then to understand the origin of evil and why things are playing out in our world the way that they are playing out requires His view, requires a biblical view on that subject, especially how it fits into Genesis chapter 1. So let's go first to Jesus' words. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 10, you'll see it. I was there when Satan fell from heaven like lightning. And it's one of the theologically most pregnant statements you will ever see made in the Bible. Absolutely loaded with intrigue. First of all, if Jesus says, I was there and I saw it happen, that leads to some amazing, obvious conclusions and lots and lots of questions. First of all, the conclusion. If he says, I was there, that means he was present. And so he's speaking of his preexistence. Before God the Son became Jesus the man, God the Son is in heaven and says, I saw Satan fall from heaven, and he fell like lightning, meaning it was incredibly fast. God brought judgment upon him. And Jesus says, I saw that judgment. So in the time before time, God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Father had to deal with rebellion in heaven, if you can imagine. But before we can even get to that, we have to keep going with Jesus' statement. He fell from where to where and why? Obviously, at one point in eternity past, Satan is in heaven, but he fell from heaven. Why? Well, the clue is in that exact same sentence. I'm just going to ask the guys in the tech room to put Luke 10 back on the screen for you for a minute, just so you would read that yourself. Look at it very closely at what it's saying. The clue is right in that verse. Do you notice his name has already been changed? That's part of the judgment. In in Jesus' statement, he's called Satan. He's being called Diablos, the, the deceiver. Because God always changes your name to match your character. Did you know that there's a new name waiting for you in heaven? The Bible reveals that God has a name chosen just for you. It's a name known to no one else but God. And He's chosen that name personally for you. It will match your character when you step into heaven one day. And God will know you by that name. That's an amazing thought that you'll be given a new name. Because God always changes the name to match the character. Well, Ezekiel and Isaiah, as I referred to earlier, both of those individuals whom I encourage you to go to, Ezekiel chapter 28, Isaiah chapter 14, they both write about Satan's name at the point of creation. He wasn't always known as Satan. He was given a name of rank and of privilege. As one of the holy angels, he was a member of the cherubim, Higher rank than the seraphim, higher rank than the malach, which are the warrior angels. He was of the highest order. Look with me at this. This comes directly from Isaiah 14, 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. You know somewhat of the word that I'm going to put on the screen for you, Hallel. 
because you understand hallelujah. Hallelujah is the, the, the phrase expression that we're familiar with. Halel is a derivative of that. Halel is talking about this object that's so bright and so glorious, it draws worship to the Creator. Halel, the name in Hebrew that was given to this one we call Satan, this Halel was also known as the morning star or Lucifer. Lucifer isn't a derogatory name. It was the biblical name given to him. Ezekiel goes on to say in 28 verse 14 this, you were the anointed cherub who covers and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. Are you noticing that these are all in past tense? You were, you had, it was, it's no longer that way. So you notice Jesus' description is he's no longer the star of the morning. He's no longer the son of the dawn. He's no longer the anointed cherub. Jesus calls him Satan because he's filled with violence and he's filled with rebellion. And the fall that we're referring to that Jesus is speaking of here is the first rebellion. Before Eve's temptation, before Adam's sin, the first sin was not in the Garden of Eden. The first sin was in heaven, if you can imagine. So here's what I know about rebellion. At its core, rebellion is this deep, intense desire for independence, especially independence from God, a desire to throw the shackles off. And to be honest with you this morning, I can relate to that. I can relate to that kind of rebellion. Because it's the desire that's deep within every single one of us to go our own way. It's deep in our core. That's why that old song, that hymn writer put that song together, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It's just, it's who we are in our sin nature. And rebellion surfaces in four forms that I find as I work through the scriptures. I put them in your notes this morning, but you see this independence from God. We want this rebellion of this independence from God's instruction. So what do we do? We, we neglect his word. We just ignore it. I don't have anything to do with it because I don't want to know what I'm supposed to be doing. And then there's that independence from God's command. And we defy his directives. As it really ramps up, you get into defiance and this rebellion, and there's independence from God's rule. Reject his authority over me. And when you take all three of those and put them together, it produces a fourth one. When you put together the rebellion of instruction and the rebellion of command and the rebellion of rule, it produces and surfaces in this rebellion of independence from God's design. And that is the ultimate form of rebellion in which an individual wants to chart, chart their own course and say, I want my own way. I'm going to make my own design. So for you and I, because we can relate to this, it should not surprise us when a culture that's lacking a relationship with God completely throws God's design aside. God's design is a law for marriage. God's design is a law for law and order. His design for men to be men and women to be women. The, the rebellion mindset that we all are prone to is this. If God designed it, rebellion demands to go in the opposite direction. And if you know individuals like that that are at that fourth stage who have hit that point of rebellion, 
they're caught up in a deep, deep place where they desperately need Jesus because that's the only way you're going to see your way out of it. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal it to them. And know this, I'm not throwing stones at anyone because we have all been tripped up by Satan at some level. You agree with that? Amen? We all have. We can identify with that. He is the father of deception. And he's very old and he's very smart and he's very good at what he does. And the human race can look at all failure and point to the source, regardless of what world philosophy will say differently. God's word says this is truth. So, philosophy stuff aside, when did Satan fall? Let me give you some little bit of detail here. I'm going to point you towards Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Look with me on the screen at this. I personally lean towards a little bit of what we'll call a gap theory. I'll explain that in just a minute. Genesis 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Pause there for a second. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The darkness that's being mentioned there in the second verse, we'll get into this more in a couple weeks, but that's actually talking about spiritual darkness. It's not talking about turning off the light switch, but I'm already getting a little bit deeper into this than I want to with you. I just need to generalize with you and amplify for just a moment. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And here's where I allow for the gap. And I'm not talking about a gap allowing for the creation or the evolution of dinosaurs. It's not what we're referring to. There's something that's happening here. Something, somewhere between God calling creation into existence and the shaping of this planet, there's a rebellion in heaven. And we'll get to that shortly. What brought it about? And I've got to be honest with you, this troubles me greatly. How could a being bigger, stronger, smarter, and faster in every way superior to humans, how could that being fall from a position of holiness? I don't get it. How could a holy angel rebel, rebel against an absolutely perfect God in a perfect environment? Here's what troubles me the most about this. I don't know. I don't know how the temptation originated, but here's what I do know. I do know that my life on this planet is a product of that choice because I witness chaos on a daily basis, and you do too. We see it constantly. As I said before, some people think that Satan was just created as a, a Halloween costume, and he's nothing more. It's just a really imaginatively conceived way of pointing human blame on something because we can't explain man's failure to get along. Is there reasonable evidence to believe that there is a being opposed to the plans of God, and that being is the incarnation of evil? I would argue that if you carefully consider it and you reason it through, there is an adversary. And let me explain it this way. God makes a perfect world according to Genesis 1. The world is without flaw. 
Day one, he says it's good. Day two, he says it's good. Day three, it's good. Day four, it's good. Day five, it's good. You get to day six, and he says, <laughs> it's very good. That's God's stamp. It's a very, very good creation. So how does that become corrupt? How does that become deformed? Is there reasonable evidence to understand that there's a being opposed to God? So he says it's very good, but harmony does not exist in the world that you and I live in today. Rather, there's contradiction. There's happiness, but there's sorrow. There's fulfillment, but there's failure. We find failure, and then we find kindness. And we find kindness, but we find cruelty. And there's trust, and there's betrayal. Two things diametrically opposed to each other. And if you are a believer in God and you say to someone, God is really loving. He's so good. But you say that to someone who doesn't have a relationship with God, very likely their response is going to be, right, really? What about what happened in Haiti with the earthquakes? What about the volcanoes? What about the pandemic? What about the disease? What about children that are sold into sexual slavery? What, what about that? What about that tragedy? The very fact that evil exists is evidence of something actively engaged in working against the plans of God. Let me show you Dr. Eric Sauer's quote. It's in your notes this morning, but I'll put it on the screen for you. He wrote a book called Man, King of the Earth back in the, the 70s. The existence of sorrow and evil throughout the world proves the existence of a transcendental, real, dynamic, hostile power. The fact is that the devil is a spiritual being whose existence cannot in any way be assailed by philosophy or natural science, since in our world immediately surrounding us, we observe disharmony, death, and destruction. In other words... The Lord God would not be the source of the chaos because He's not the author of confusion. Because God would not create and then turn around and oppose the very thing He purposed. Jesus says that's the definition of nuts. A house divided against itself can't stand. Do you remember when people came and accused Him of doing the works of Satan? What was His response to them? Works of Satan? Satan's not going to throw Satan out. They were accusing him of delivering a man from demon possession. And his famous statement, a house divided against itself cannot stand. God's not going to oppose himself. Okay, so what did the rebellion look like? I can much more easily amplify what happened than how. Because God reveals a lot about what happened. But to do that, I have to take you briefly back to 605 B.C., and Ezekiel is, is a prophet in the nation of Israel at that point of time, and it's, it describes a very historical event. Just hear me out on this. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. A lot of historians have recorded what I'm about to tell you. I mean extra-biblical historians. Nebuchadnezzar, as the king of Babylon, has had two world empires come against him, the Egyptian empire and the Assyrian empire. Those two forces decided to combine forces to challenge the king of Babylon, which had the greatest empire in the world at that time. 
And they meet on a river called the Euphrates, the banks of the river, a huge valley, wide area. And if you haven't read about it before, perhaps you remember it from grade school. It's called the Battle of Carchemish. It's perhaps one of the world's foremost, most important battles that had ever taken place in history. Nebuchadnezzar, just to save you the time of reading about it a lot, but you can delve into it later, he had an overwhelming victory. He brought all the armies of Babylon. He literally crushed Egypt and Assyria, and those two world powers never again rose to prominence in history. But during this period of time, swept into the battles was this tiny little nation of Israel. And inside the borders of that tiny little nation is an individual who's a prophet of God, and his name is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel begins recording what's going on around him, chapter 28, chapter 29, chapter 30. And God tells Ezekiel, because he's been taken as captive and he's got nothing to do with time on his hands, to write a judgment against one of the kings of Assyria who came against the king of Babylon. And that particular king is the king of a region known as Tyre. We're going to put an image for you on the screen. And this is a real historical place. Today you can go into what we call Lebanon. That's the ruins of Tyre in the region of Lebanon, just north of Israel. It was what was Assyria at that period of time. You can look it up yourself and check it out. Now, Tyre, T-Y-R-E, had a ruthless, godless, cruel man as what they called king. He was evil personified, and the Lord God was about to bring judgment against him. So Ezekiel 28 starts out with this warning of judgment. The word of the Lord came again to me saying, son of man, that's Ezekiel's title, Ezekiel, son of man, say to the leader, who is actually, if you have your Bible open right now, a prince, the leader of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am God, I sit in the seat of God, in the heart of the seas, yet you are a man and not God. So this prince has a God complex. He thinks that he's God. He thinks that he's all that. And Ezekiel has to lay out this judgment against this earthly leader who's called the Prince of Tyre. And so beginning in verse 2 and all the way to verse 10, we're not going to do them all. I'm just going to tell you what verse 10 says. He lays out the judgment, but here's verse 10. You will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. So you've got a person on earth, a human being, exalting himself to be God, and he's just committed the ultimate sin of rebellion. Pride has given way, and pride always births rebellion, and at its core, rebellion is this deep, intense desire to go your own way. That's what I know about rebellion. I want to throw off the shackles. I'm going to do my own thing. So pride is always revealed in action. We talk about that here a lot. What you believe about God determines what you do next, what your actions are. So this pride is revealed in this action, and he's saying, I'm my own destiny. I am God. And pride leads to rebellion against God. Just think it through. What caused Adam and Eve to fall? Pride. In the day that you eat of the fruit, you will be as, come on, church, help me out, you will be as God. 
David, what caused him to number the mighty men of Israel. God said, don't do it, David. And David did it anyways. Pride. What keeps you and I from repenting of our sin? Pride. That's the rebellious nature in us. Pride says, I want my own way, and I want it on my terms. Just set that thought aside for a second. Last week, we explored the reality of angels that behind the earthly powers and actions that we see going on on this planet, there's always an influence from another realm. Might be a good influence, might be bad influence. So there's, there's spiritual warfare taking place. Holy angels, fallen angels. War of light, war of darkness. And I reminded you of Ephesians 6.12, which says this, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces, of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And back to Ezekiel. He's, he's speaking of an earthly leader of Tyre, this nation, this prince. But then he transitions and he begins to go behind the scenes and parts the curtain on the stage, if you will, and he reveals the one who's in the driver's seat the one who's manipulating the levers, the puppet master, if you will. Now, mind you, when the king of Babylon and the king of Egypt and the king of Assyria, when they came into that region, they looked at the leader of Tyre as a king. They didn't look at him as a prince. But God has given him a lesser title. God's called him a prince instead of a king. The real king is not the visible person sitting on the earthly throne. God says there's an invisible power behind the throne. Watch Ezekiel in verse 11. Again, meaning new, new information. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. So it's no longer the prince of Tyre. Now it's the king of Tyre. He's no longer a prince, now he's talking about a king. And verse 11 is turning our attention away from the visible, the things that you and I can see in the world right now, and he reveals the invisible, away from the prince of Tyre towards the true king of Tyre. If you have eyes to see, if you're a student of the Bible, if you have ears to hear, see what God's doing. God's turning your attention away from flesh and blood and he's turning your attention and focusing on principalities and powers. He's focusing on the forces of darkness. The description you are about to see is one that cannot belong to a human being. It is not possible. This concerns an entity that is completely different than what you and I know. Ezekiel 28:12. Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Notice it was past tense again. Ezekiel is speaking of an era, of a time before time, beyond the bounds of time, before the formation of the earth. What's remarkable about this? Prophets always speak of the future. That's what they do. Prophetics. They give future information, but... He drops the mantle, and he begins becoming historian, and he speaks of the past. Understand this phrase, the seal of perfection. 
It, it means to totally fill the pattern. So God says, past tense, you had the seal of perfection. When God called forth creation, both in the heavens and on the earth, He established boundaries. You especially see it in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. When He says to the waters, come forth, He says, this far you shall go and no further, meaning He put land in place to stop the waters. When He put the stars in the sky, when He put the solar systems in place, this will be your orbit. You fill up the sum, you fill the boundaries, you go exactly to where you're supposed to go. But of all the created beings, of all the beings created, Satan is by far the wisest and the most beautiful and filled with completeness. You fill up the sum, you complete the seal, absolute perfection. We might call it the showroom model. And here's the description of the showroom model. Go with me to verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold and the workmanship of your settings and sockets. Mm. I'm adding mm for effect. He's saying gold was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared Now, anyone reading that knows that can't apply to a human. There's no way. That doesn't fit any human being I've ever met, especially when you add verse 14 to it. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the Bible, we meet specifically by name three cherubs. You you met Gabriel last week in Daniel chapter 10, speaking to Daniel about the things that were coming, and Daniel described the appearance of that angel. And you meet Michael. Michael shows up in the Christmas story, but also he appeared in the Daniel chapter 10 story. But this is another cherub. Apparently, there are multiple cherubs. We don't know how many, but this is a greater cherub being spoken of here, a cherubim, a cherub who covers who is the most magnificent creature ever made. Here's what we know about cherubim. They form the base at the throne of God. We also read that they guard the Ark of the Covenant and that they were placed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden after man fell. So that's what we know about the cherubim. But we also know there's three ranks of angels. There's the malach, as I spoke about earlier, the warrior angels. There's the seraphim. And the seraphim are covered with six wings and With two they fly, with two they cover their feet, with two they cover their eyes. Isaiah writes about them, Revelation speaks of them. But then there's the cherubim, and they are the highest rank known to us of the created beings of God. David wrote about them, Psalm 99.1. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. So the malach are before the throne of God, the seraphim surround the throne of God, and the cherubim are at the base of it. Now just think this through. The closer a person or a being is to the throne, the higher the rank. Just think of the Queen of England. Queen of England gets her photo taken. Who's standing around the throne with her? Her supporting cast. And the closer you are to the throne, the higher your rank, the higher your position. Well, in the case of the cherubim, they're at the base of the throne, 
But something is remarkable about this one. Ezekiel 28, 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. Now, whenever the word mountain is used in relation to God, especially holy mountain, and God says, I cast you from the holy mountain, it's a symbol of the kingdom or of the throne. You, you find the words holy mount used to describe the central place of worship, especially as people went up to the temple to worship in Jerusalem. The, the holy mount is referred to that way. This particular cherub, who is of the highest order, but one among equal cherubs, nearest the center of worship at the throne, on the mountain of God, at some point, God elevates this cherub above the others and puts him into a place where he covers, and he anoints him, making him the arch cherub. And thus you get the description, you're over the throne, and covering the throne is the highest possible privilege. It's, it's like the hood ornament on the front of the car. Spectacular. So God says this in verse 15, you walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So just as his being was perfect, his actions were perfect from the very beginning of time, perfection. Therefore, the fault does not lay with God because he wasn't created evil. He was created perfect. Satan wasn't created evil. He chose evil through pride, rebellion. So perfect, he even had the power of contrary choice. You don't have that. You've never had that. You were born into sin. We didn't get a choice on the issue of sin. We were born into sin. Satan was created perfect, and he chose sin, contrary choice. So this one who fell from heaven fell for the same reason as the prince of Tyre, pride. Now, put this piece together that we've just described. Look at it as a chunk, Ezekiel 28, 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, you covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was haughty because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom. By reason of your splendor, I threw you to the ground. When God instructs Ezekiel to write these things, he says, I want you to take up a lament as though God is mourning and grieving over what became of this one. He's looking at his beauty. He's looking at his power. He's looking at his person. I know what I want. And pride gives way to sin, and he conceived in his mind this revolt, and when he went, he didn't go alone. Scripture records that one-third of the holy angels went with him. Two-thirds remain holy, one-third became demons, what we refer to today as demons. Because of pride. This is amplified by Isaiah. Isaiah 14 says this, but you said in your heart, verse 15, I will make myself like the Most High. 
This is one of the five I wills. You should read Isaiah 14 later today. Now, put all this stuff together. Once those angels fell, and once Satan rebelled, God could have spoken, and they would have immediately gone out of existence. Why didn't he? God could have wiped them out. I thought often about why Noah didn't kill those two mosquitoes when he brought them on the ark. Man, you had a chance. Humorous, but serious here. God could have, but he didn't. Why? First know this, especially if you're new to church. Jesus is intimately aware of the source of the struggle and the turmoil and the division and the disease and the death and the betrayal. He is intimately familiar with it. He let us know in Luke 10, 18, I was there and I saw what he did. I saw him fall from heaven like lightning and the judgment was intense on him. So Jesus tells us, I'm very familiar with what this guy can do. But God threw him down instead of wiping him out. Here's how I understand it. God chose to give this rebellion full opportunity. Every possible angle to play out by Satan through all of time, from Genesis until the future kingdom, if you will, from Genesis to Revelation. All of that time, since the beginning of time, God has given to run the rebellion to its limits. And I'm persuaded this is the reason why. I am persuaded in so doing, it shows to all humans, to all beings for all time, that all of the avenues and all of the forces of rebellion in earth and in heaven put together ever since the earth came into formation, that all of that put together could not dethrone the Lord God. It's not possible. There's no usurping of God. God's authority cannot be usurped. It's impossible to dethrone God. So why here? Why not send him to Pluto? Why do we get him Let him burn up on Mercury. First, we accept the reality that God's Word says that He is without failure, meaning there's no flaw in God. I hope you believe that. So that means ultimately what's going on here is about a greater purpose. It means ultimately what's going on here is about greater glory for God. So here's how I understand it. God allows the greater creature, Satan, to be among the lesser creatures, us, because God would demonstrate that he's able to do more with the lesser when the greater is in rebellion against him and the lesser is in submission to him. That's you. You may not want to think of yourself as lesser, but we're told that we're created lower than the angels. The reality, according to the Bible, is Satan has been defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. But for a dead enemy, 
he sure kicks and bites a lot. And he won't give up the struggle. So there's some things that you need to know about Satan as we wrap this up. While he is still temporarily powerful, he is not all-powerful. He is not infinite. He is not all-knowing. He cannot read your mind. He doesn't know your thoughts because he's not omniscient. Only God is. And he's not the equal opposite power of God. That would be like saying, I could race Michael Phelps in a pool. We might be in the same water together, but there'd be no race because there'd be no competition. Michael Phelps would leave me at the gate He is not the equal opposite power of God. There's no competition there. That's not what's involved. And as much as Satan can be the cause of your temptation, he cannot force you to fail. That's your own decision. That's what you do with the information that you have available to you. He can accuse you, but he cannot condemn you, and he does not get to judge you. So Satan cannot send you to eternal separation. He cannot send you to hell. Only God gets to determine your eternal destiny. And he alone knows whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Praise the Lord for that. God knows. So hear this in closing. Jesus has total and complete power over Satan because he crushed Satan at the cross. Therefore, Jesus has total and complete power to save you and especially save you from your sins. The final nail in the rebellion of Satan is the cross of Jesus Christ. So lo, his doom is sure. Look at me one more time. Revelation 20.10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Today, you and I are commanded to be on the alert. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you're commanded to be on the alert. For Satan roams among us like a lion on the prowl. You ever been to the zoo and seen the lion in a cage? He never takes his eye off the prey. Every time he turns, his eyes are locked on. He may be pacing back and forth, but he's thinking, I'd like to eat you. That's how the Bible describes Satan. And so we get these instructions that there's a spiritual battle going on all around us, and we're commanded to be on the alert. But with God, the Holy Spirit in us, we do not need to fear Satan. 1 John 4, 4, the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Praise the Lord for that, church. Praise the Lord for that truth. The one who's in you, he's greater. He's much greater. Every person sitting in this auditorium, every person who's watching from home, every person on the face of this planet is either a child of God or a child of Satan. God says there's no mushy middle. You don't get to be a fence walker on this. There's no gray area. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. If you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior to be on God's side before, you can be on God's side today. All you have to do is make the decision to give your life to Christ. Hear me on this. If you're tired of the strategies of Satan disrupting your life 
and trying to throw you off rail, you qualify for God's abundant grace. It's available to you. All you have to do is receive it. It's free to you in Christ Jesus. After this service, there'll be individuals who are over at the prayer room. They would love to talk with you about these things. I'll be here in the front. I'd love to talk with you about these things. And by the way, if we haven't met yet, I'll be down here. I'd love to connect with you and just talk with you if you're brand new to the church. What I would love to do for you right now is pray for you as you take on this week, knowing that you're surrounded by spiritual battles. And Satan is an adversary working against you, successfully advancing the kingdom for Christ. You know that. You know this information. You've been equipped. How is God going to use it in your life to engage with other people? Now, that's up to you and the person you talk to, and most importantly, up to God. So I'm going to pray for you that way. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for every single one of us that as we face the issue of rebellion in our life, and we recognize that we are prone to wander, you would, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and I know you do this already, but continue to check us, God. Don't let us get too far. Keep us from even rebelling in the first place, that we wouldn't have the pain and the suffering that goes with having to be corrected. So God, we give that issue over to you. Keep us from rebellion. But as we engage with people in our social circle who are maybe even clearly rebelling against you. Give us, Father, the courage to speak into their lives. And we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal to those individuals that they need Jesus. We ask for these things because he defeated Satan at the cross. And we come to you in his name, proclaiming victory over Satan, not because of what we did, but because of what you did. So we pray. And we ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Before I let you go, just a couple of detail things, kind of housekeeping things. You're here at the 11 o'clock. If you have an opportunity to attend the 9 o'clock service at some point, that would help us a lot. As you can see, the auditorium is filling up. But unfortunately, the 9 o'clock is filling up at the same time. So you'll have to kind of navigate that. But there's more room in the 9 than there is in the 11. And also, if you're not aware of it, the north parking lot, the children's parking lot up here, sometimes seems to get ignored. If you're looking for a parking space when you're here in the morning... Don't hesitate to go to the north side and see if there's any spaces available for you there as well. That's it. Just those two things. Have a great week, New Hope.